I'm not uh, altogether sure exactly how this story goes because um, I, I wasn't um, necessarily intending on talking about it until we sang that last song. But um, I forget who wrote that song. It's an ancient, I mean, Crowder redid this one, but it's an ancient hymn, um, a couple hundred years old. Um, yeah, I forget what the guy's name is, but beautiful hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And those lines that, you know, here I raise my Ebenezer. We sing that. We don't really know what that means sometimes. Ebenezer is, is a rock that was lifted up in the Old Testament as a way of thanking God, saying, every time I see this rock, I'm reminded that God has brought me this far. It's a rock of remembrance and of looking back and saying, God, thank you for your faithfulness in my life. And it's a way of looking forward and saying, God, the, the God that brought me thus far will continue to lead me home. And that's what we sing about. And then that, that last verse, which I think we all so resonate with, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Don't we all feel that way at times? So this guy writes this beautiful hymn, expressing utter dependence upon God, who has brought him this far and safely to God, I pray you'd, you'd lead me home and most people who know uh, of this man will say that after he wrote that hymn later on in life, um, he fell away from the Lord, just as that song says. And he was sitting, uh, he was at, just lived a life of womanizing, and he was sitting in <clears throat> a horse-drawn carriage. He was out on a date with some lady, and they, they somehow stopped in front of a church. The church doors were open, and as they were sitting in front of the church, his mind not thinking about God in the least, um, they heard coming out of the church this song. Come thou fount of every blessing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. He had so departed the life of Christ that she had no idea who he was. And she heard the song and she was moved to tears. And she said, blessed is the person who wrote such a beautiful song. And as we sing this song, I think about like how real those words are. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And, and, and we, we appear uh, uh, last night. Um, eight or nine people sat up here, and I, I think about all the, 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 the wonderful testimonies that were shared, but I also think about the reality of, of how as many times as we've done this, not every single one of those people who have been a blessing to us continue walking with Jesus. If they were to come back two years later, three years later, four years later, the reality is that our hearts collectively, as well as our hearts personally, are so prone to wander. And when things get hard, the temptation is to leave the God I love, and that's, I mean, I, I know that we can't do that. As parents, you can't keep your kids from wandering. As a pastor, I can't keep all of us from wandering. But that's my heart. And that's, that's all of our hearts. And we go on mission trips and, and we take teams of 15, 20 people. And then we go back to the same place. And, and five years later, people are like, oh, yeah, what was that guy's name? Or what was that girl's name? What is she up to? And remember, she did um, body worship so well. Or he did, gave his testimony so powerfully. And, and five years later, um, I think about them. And they're not walking with the Lord anymore. They don't come out to church. And they, they're asking, what are they up to? And it breaks my heart when I think about things like that. When I have to tell them, oh, you know what? I haven't seen them for a little bit. I've, I've, I've reached out to him, but um, he's no longer coming out to church. That's a temptation in all of our hearts. And I know what numbers say. They say that most people are not going to come back to church after they graduate college. I don't care about, I don't really care about the numbers, honestly. I know that that's what the majority might be, but each of us is different. And we don't have to be like that. And first Peter was written so that it wouldn't be like that. And we're going through this so that those things won't be our story. 
When we get old and we sit with our, our, our children and they, they ask, Grandpa, why don't you go to church anymore? That it wouldn't be, oh, you know what? I used to go to church. I used to be um, active in the praise team. I used to be active in house church. I used to do all of these things. I used to go every Saturday night. I used to go to prayer meetings. But I don't go anymore. I don't want that to be our story. Because that's the sad story of so many people. And the temptation in the hearts of the people and Christians in Asia Minor the temptation was, as they face hardship, as things get difficult, the temptation is to leave the God that they love and to go back to the old life. And as we've been talking about this, we're talking about how do we keep that, that, that from happening? How do we raise a people in, uh, with such conviction and love for Jesus that that doesn't become the cautionary tale of our lives? And so First Peter chapter 4, we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 6 as we continue in this idea, as we continue in this theme, as we continue in this idea of what it is to live uh, for Christ in the midst of a world <clears throat> that is hostile to Christianity. First Peter chapter 4, this is verses 1 through 6, and this is God's word. Through the same Peter who one time denied Jesus, was restored on the shores of Galilee and later gave his life for Christ, being crucified upside down because he did not deem himself worthy to, to be crucified in the same manner as his Savior. This Peter writes these words. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude <clears throat> because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, for this is the reason the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. This is God's word. This passage um, breaks up pretty easily in its outline, verses 1 and 2, 3 and 4, 5 and 6. Okay, verses 3 and 4, I think, is the meat of it. It tells us the what. Okay, verses 1 and 2 tell the why behind the what, and then four and, uh, 5 and 6 talk about the so what. Okay? The what first, the why, and then the so what. As we look into this, again, the temptation for the people of the Christians of Asia Minor was when temptation comes, right? They get this, this, this excitement about sharing and living in Christ. They share it with their friends, and some of them who believe similarly are excited, but they realize that the rest of the world, the majority of the Roman Empire, doesn't meet their enthusiasm with similar enthusiasm. In fact, they, they meet it with pessimism, with derision, with persecution, with insult. And so the temptation in their mind is, hey, you know what? If all these people are saying it's not true, it's not that really that great, then maybe it's really not that great. And the temptation is to go back. And when things aren't going well for us, when things are difficult, when we're suffering, when times of hardship, we look back to the way things used to be. Isn't it our nature to magnify the good things about the past and to shrink the challenges of the past? That's what they say when they say the grass is greener on the other side. It's to the grass is greener, but <laughs> you hear them say the water bill is always higher also. The temptation when we look back to the old life is to think of all the great things, but then to overlook the hard things and the challenging things. 
And so Peter tells us, and I think he gives us some sage advice as we look at this. We're going to start in verses 3 and 4. And the first thing, right and wrong are not determined by the majority. Okay, right and wrong aren't determined by the majority. Verse, well, I'll get to that in a sec, but let's, let's build up to it for a sec. It is, again, it's part of our nature to kind of go with the flow, isn't it? That's, what is the flow? The flow is the current that is set by the majority of people. And a lot of times this is simple. This is easy and it's a good thing to do. All the cars are going this way on the road. It would be a good idea to go with the flow, right? I mean, that's simple. That's pretty easy stuff. I've got a dress I want to wear. I've got a suit I want to wear. And I'm not sure which one. I've got two of them and I've got to choose. So I ask all of these people and I say, which one do you guys think is good? The fluorescent yellow one or the black one? And everybody says, I think the black one is better. It's a good idea to go with the flow. So in some, in some situations, it's very natural and easy and right to go with the flow. You're playing mafia. Okay, we always play mafia during sermons. Okay, we're playing mafia and everybody says, let's get this, get rid of this person, including the cop. If that's the right, if that's what the majority says, we'll go with the flow and we'll kill them off. It's in a lot of situations. We do go with the flow and it's right to do so. But in other situations, the majority can be wrong. And in that case, we'd be wise to go against the flow, right? I mean, we're just talking simple. Uh, we don't have to look in the Bible to pull this stuff out. I was, I was sitting at the doctor's office a few weeks ago, and in the waiting room, we're watching Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, right? Meredith Vieira style, not uh, Regis Philbin. But watching this, and the question is, I forgot what the question was, but the guy didn't know, and so he said, let's pull, I'll pull the audience. So they pulled the audience, and boop, 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 the numbers come, and 80% said B. And so he said, well, that's what I was thinking anyway, so I'll go with B, final answer. And Meredith says, oh, I'm sorry. This time the crowd was wrong. And so he didn't get any money and he walked off sad. Because sometimes the crowd is wrong. Sometimes the majority is wrong. When it comes to morality, this is this was happening in the Roman Empire. The majority was setting the course for what is right and wrong. And Peter's writing to say, hey, you know what? They don't set. They are not the arbiters of what is right and what is wrong. Morality is never set by the majority. Here's what he says. This is what everyone knew. Verses 3 and 4 were talking about life in the Roman Empire. Okay, this is the, the, the evil and the, um, just the, the wicked nature of the Roman Empire was famous, written about by Roman historians like Tacitus. And so Peter says what they already knew. For you've spent enough time in the past <clears throat> doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, Drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Okay. I know these are big words, and some of y'all might know, know, not know what some of them are. Debauchery, it basically means we're wasting our lives in sinful living. It's this attitude that says, hey, if we're going to sin, let's sin hard and sin big or go home. And so they had these crazy, crazy, just kinds of um, wild parties. Just living it up. With all kinds of things like they say here, lust and drunkenness are similar to what we talk about today. Lust, just uh, our sexual desires just gone out of control. Drunkenness, when we take the desire for alcohol and we just blow that up until we are no longer in control of our minds, our lives, our emotions, our words, our cell phones, and we just, we get drunk. And all of a sudden we realize, oh my gosh, I've said things I shouldn't have said. I drunk dialed, I drunk texted, I did all these things, and now look, it's on the internet. I drunkenness. And he goes on, he, he talks about um, orgies. This is, I mean, this is just taking lust and blowing it up. Having sex, multiple partners, just having parties filled with these things. Carousing is just wild partying. That's what it is. Let's have these great big parties. 
What, what defines all five of these things, what unites these things is just an absolute utter loss of self-inhibition, of self-control, just no fear, just living it up. It's, this, it's the Epicurean lifestyle. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's seeking the pleasure principle. That's all it's about. We don't need to have restraint. Let's live with no limits. Let's just go for it and go hard into sin. Dive into it without any thought about the consequences. And the detestable idolatry. Idolatry was not something that the empire talked about because to have many gods, um, that's their culture. And so idolatry was only something that Christians taught. That there's only one God and everything else that's not a God that's being worshipped is detestable in the eyes of God. These were the values, the mores, the morals, the standards of the Roman Empire. It was encapsulated by the idol worship that involved all kinds of illicit sensuality that involved uh, things like the, the bloody violence of the gladiator uh, combats. And, and these kinds of things were, were famous and common that defined the Roman Empire. And it was easy in light of the suffering that was to come in the lives of Christians for the people of God to look back on that life and say, hey, you know what, Let's, maybe that life was better. It's not much different the first century and the 21st century. I mean, these are the vices that still define our culture. And these are the vices that culture oftentimes twists into almost being upheld to positions of honor. It's crazy. But Ron Ritchie, he's a preacher out in California. He says, you know what? There's a couple ways in which what is sinful has become accepted as right. He says a couple ways is politics and profits. Okay, when politicians make laws, morale, uh, the, the majority begins to follow those laws. But the majority has never been the standard for what is right and wrong. And so here government, in order to, for politics sake, in order to win the vote, in order not ruffle feathers, it's easy to take what is sinful, blatantly sinful, and then brush it under the rug. It's why, it's why the government can say, hey, we're going to make, we're going to make, we're going to redefine marriage and say it can be just be between two people who love each other instead of between a man and a woman as God has defined marriage to be. And as they begin to redefine morality, the majority is beginning to follow them. And what Peter is saying is the majority does not set morals. Right and wrong are not determined by the majority of people. That's what he's saying. He's making it very clear that the government and politics cannot set for us as the people of God what is right and what is wrong. Politics do not determine. That's why, man, the, um, what is it, the FTC, whatever the, the, the communications or trade commission, they talk about, they give ratings to different video games and movies and stuff like that. They say, if you're 17 years old, once you hit 17, you can go watch a rated R movie. And I think about that, and I think about some of these, these R-rated movies, and I think about some of these warnings, and I know that by the government's laws, it's easy for me. I can, yeah, of course, I've, I'm over twice as old as being able to watch a rated R movie, but I know there's so many R-rated movies that would just sear my conscience and just burn a hole in my soul if I were to watch them because of the illicit sexuality that is shown, because of the, the, the language and the violence and the blood and all of these things that are anti-Christian. And people are saying, hey, you know what? I can, I'm 17 years old. I can watch it. I, hot tub time machine, whatever, forgetting cereal. All these, these, these movies that glorify and gratify sexuality. Yeah, we can watch it. There's, there's nudity all over, gratuitous, violence, cursing. 
And we don't bat an eye. Why? Because we say, you know what? It's an R-rated movie. I'm 18 years old. I can watch that stuff. But Peter's saying the government doesn't set, and government, as the government pushes the flow, majority follows. He's saying right and wrong has never been determined by, by the majority of people. It's never been. He's saying you're not like that anymore. That used to be your way of life, but haven't you spent enough time? That's what he says. Uh, verse 3, he says, you've spent enough time living in those things. That's not you anymore. The government cannot, politics cannot dictate our morality for us and what is right and wrong. It's not only politics, but it's profit. As long as people begin to realize I can make money off of it, then they're going to they're, they're gonna say this is okay and it's right. I was, at, um, I was at someone's house this week and I was in their bathroom and I was looking at their, their body wash and they had Axe body wash. And I was reading the instructions. I don't know why. I, I didn't need to read the instructions. I know how it works. But I was reading it just because I, I like reading things like that. When I sit down to eat breakfast, I, when, <clears throat> when I was little, I couldn't ever eat without reading something. If I was sitting by myself. And so I would read the back of uh, Cinnamon Toast Crunch and all those things and read the nutrition and all that stuff. But So I was reading this, uh, the back of Axe Body Wash, and it, had, it said instructions. I was like, okay, let's see if they tell me anything different. Two, just two steps. Okay, and they're drawn in cartoons. One, it had a cartoon guy uh, washing his body and, and lathering up. Right? Okay, I know how to do that. Second step is him, and he's got this girl <laughs> with this short skirt, very voluptuous, on Axe body wash, and that's the second step. And underneath it says, makes you irresistible to women. My first thought was, that's a secret. <laughs> my second step, my second thought was, yeah, you know what? They're trying to package sexuality and to hail this as a virtue because it makes them a profit. Since when has being irresistible to women become a standard and a virtue of morality? Well, I'll tell you when. As soon as people thought that we could make money off of it. So here I'm talking with a, a friend of mine and actually a, a, a couple of friends. One in, in Washington State. He's talking about the legalization of marijuana. And another friend in Colorado saying at drugstores, they have signs, we sell marijuana because it's legal in those two states. So my friend, I was talking to my friend, he was talking to a cop in D.C. And this cop in D.C. said, you know what, as soon as people realize that this is going to generate all kinds of revenue, it's going to be legal in 50 states. They don't care about the, fa the fact that it's killing people. They don't care about the fact that you can, under the influence of marijuana, you can do all kinds of things. They don't care about, they don't hear the stories of people being addicted to it which you can be addicted. It's a joke to not think so. They don't talk about things like that. Why? Because as long as you make a profit out of it, as long as they sell it on stores, then the majority will be drawn to it. And the current is going to flow in this way. And the people of God were not to follow the flow of the world because right and wrong are not determined by the majority. And as they try and take a stand, verse 4, people think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. And the, 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 the imagery is just crazy here. It's like these, these people are, are running as fast as they can, laughing, and then they're jumping into a flood of acid and they're dying. And they're making fun of you for not doing that. They say, why, why aren't you following us? Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you going with the flow? 
and killing yourself. He says, and they make fun of us and they heap abuse on you. The, the first thing that Peter's saying, like they don't tell you the fact that as they do these things, they're killing themselves slowly, killing themselves softly, killing themselves without even knowing it. As they plunge into this flood of dissipation, that's what he's saying. That's the what. Hey, what the, the why? Verses one and two. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also the same attitude because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Okay, the, the second thing that I want to say from this passage is that suffering for, suffering for Christ, suffering for Jesus is better than suffering for sin. Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude because he suffered in his body is done with sin. There's kind of like a couple ways to see this. One, it talks about suffering in his body. It's talking about Jesus as he was beaten and bloodied and ultimately crucified on the cross. St. Jesus Christ, when he's dead, is done with sin. And in the same way, Galatians 2.20, we have been crucified with Christ. We no longer live, but Christ lives in us. The life I live in the body, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's saying, because Christ died, because he suffered, a dead person can no longer sin. He's saying, you and I are dead with Christ and we no longer sin. This is the first way to see it. The second way, the second uh, intended understanding of this is that uh, when we are willing to suffer, we're, we're saying, I so want to avoid sin that I'm willing to suffer. They're saying, in your avoidance of sin, of debauchery, of orgies, of lust, of carousing, of all of drunkenness, of detestable idolatry, in your fight against it, you're suffering, and your suffering is an indication that not only do you want to stop living in sin, but that you're taking steps to stop living in sin as well. And as a result, they're suffering for the sake of Christ. In order to suffer for Christ, though, verse 1, it uses this interesting language, says, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. If you're going to go into battle and get beaten down with persecution and with insults and with abuse and with scorn, then you need to arm yourself. The, 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 the word here literally is put armor on, right? To arm ourselves. What is it that we need to arm ourselves with if we want to go through the persecution and the suffering that is to come, that's going to come against those who don't do what the majority does? What is the kind of armor that we need to have when people begin to say, hey, you know what? Why don't you do these things that we do at school? Why don't you gossip with us? Why don't you uh, go and do these things? Why don't you come and party with us? Why don't you get drunk with us? Why don't you go clubbing with us and, and do these, uh, this womanizing that we do? Why don't you do these things? In order for us to stand, he says, here's what you're going to need to do. is You're going to need to arm yourselves with the same attitude that Jesus had. And the attitude that Jesus had was, I would rather suffer than sin. That I would rather be obedient to God and suffer for it than to sin and to suffer for that. See, isn't it backward sometimes when we ask this question, okay, if marijuana becomes legal and the government says it's okay and we're to submit to the local government and the authorities, is it okay for me to, for me to engage in it? What's wrong with doing it if, if the government says it's okay and I'm paying for it? I'm not stealing it. 
at the very fundamental level, isn't that question even the wrong question? What's wrong with something? It's the same mentality behind this question. How far is too far in my relationship with my girlfriend or boyfriend? Is it okay for me to do? What's wrong with doing this? What's wrong with going here? What's wrong with doing that? I think if we were to, if we were to arm ourselves with the same attitude of Jesus, Jesus never said, hey, you know what? What's wrong with me messing around a little bit? What's wrong with me smoking up a little bit? There's nothing wrong with it. My conscience is clean. He never asked what's wrong with it. The question that we ought to be asking is what is right about this? What is honorable about this? Would God be pleased with me doing that? That's the question we should be asking as children of God. The question is what would honor Jesus? How would Jesus respond in this question? If Jesus was living today because marijuana is legal, would he do it? I'm not sure that he would. I'm pretty sure that he wouldn't. But a lot of times that's a question. I think uh, Jesus, uh, the Bible talks about marriage and, and all these things. And if Jesus were to somehow get married, she'd have to be a, an amazing woman. But if he were and he were to date somebody, I, I don't even know if that, I should even go there. But if Jesus was dating somebody, I don't think he would at, pray to a father and say, hey, father, how far is too far? Like, what is OK for me to do? And you say, oh, what Jesus is Jesus. I know he's Jesus, but that's not the attitude that we should have. Or isn't he our, isn't he our model? Isn't he the example? Isn't he what we're striving to be like? And if that's the question, then all of a sudden everything gets flipped backwards. It's not what's wrong with this. What's wrong with me nagging my husband all the time? What's wrong with me picking on her all the time? What's wrong with a little innocent gossip? That's not, that's not the issue. The question is what's right with this? What's honoring to God about this? How is God exalted in this behavior? I think that's the attitude that we need to have. It says, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Verse 2, as a result, does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Jesus decided in his mind that I would rather honor my father than to sin, even if it means suffering so that I don't deny him. Let me, let me push a little bit here. There's a university called Phillips University, and there's a professor there. His name was Oswald, uh, Oswald Golter. Um, you can Google him. You can find out all about him, Phillips University professor. And he would teach class for 41 years before that. He was a missionary in China with his wife. They're in uh, some city in China, and one day the government authorities of PSB uh, came in. They ransacked their house. They flipped their mission base upside down. They basically uh, tore it apart, and they arrested Oswald and his wife, put him in this makeshift prison, and they separated the two of them. Right? The, only, the only thing separating them was a wall made out of glass. They could see each other, but they couldn't hear each other. They could see each other, but they couldn't be with each other. And so here they said to Elliot, they said, deny the name of Christ. Now this is, this is uh, 20th century, very recently. And he had remembered that every night his wife and him would kneel by their bedside. And they would pray, say, Jesus, whatever happens, whatever happens, may we never ever deny your name. So they said, deny the name of Christ to 
Oswald Golter. And he said, I, I, I can't, I won't. I won't for my Savior. I won't deny him. And so they began to abuse his wife in full view. Tried to put his head down. They lifted his head up. They propped his eyes open so that he was forced to watch as his wife was beaten. She was raped by multiple people. Her hair was pulled out. And they said again, deny the name of Jesus Christ. And he said, through the glass, body just beaten and broken. She looked back at him and she mouthed the words, don't deny his name. The last image that he had was them dragging her by her remaining hair out the door of that prison. He never saw her again. He was moved to a different prison. He later escaped, but he never found her. He never heard anything about her. He stood up in front of that university class lecturing. He would get down on his knees. He would take off his shirt, and he would show welt marks quarter an inch deep where he was beaten with rods. And he would sit before them. He would say, men, 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 don't ever deny the name of Christ. Because he considered Suffering for Jesus to be far greater than sin. See, what the, what the people who are plunging into dissipation don't tell us, they set it up as, why are you suffering for Jesus when you can have the pleasures of sin? What they don't tell us, what they don't tell you, what they don't tell me is that the pleasures of sin last for a moment, but the pain of sin lasts for a lifetime. The real issue, and this is what John Owen said, for a, for, for a Christian... For a Christian, sin is a behavior to be avoided. It's not a pleasure to simply be tolerated. This is something to completely be avoided. The issue isn't why are you suffering for Christ when you can have the pleasures of sin? The issue is why are you suffering for Christ when you could suffer for sin? That's the real issue. That's the real, that's the real comparison. You suffer for because here's what they don't tell you. They don't tell you that when you have multiple sexual partners, right, it gets worse and worse every time. The incidence of depression skyrockets. Right, same thing with illicit drug abuse, alcohol abuse, depression skyrockets. They don't tell us about these things. They don't tell us about the, the dangers and the harms and the pitfalls of engaging in all kinds of behavior. They don't tell you that when you engage in, in pornography that your brain gets rewired. So that you need the, 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 the pleasure-producing endorphins. You need more and more of that in order to get the same high. And it creates unrealistic, unrealistic expectations of a woman when you get... So why people are getting married later and later because they have these ridiculous expectations. They want the heart of Jesus and the body of a supermodel. And it's devastating Christian women everywhere who are far more worthy than anything that our minds can imagine. They don't tell us about things like that. They don't tell us about the liver damage that happens, about the corro well, they tell us about the corrosive of our lungs, but they don't tell us that when they're offering us a cigarette. Hey, yeah, you want a cancer stick? It's going to kill you 10 years earlier. It might take your life soon. You want some? They don't tell us about those things. The issue is not why are you suffering for Christ when you can have the pleasures of sin. The real issue is you put suffering for Christ on one side and suffering for sin on the other side, and then you throw it up in the air. Which one would you rather do? And so he says, arm yourselves with the same attitude, the attitude of Christ. 
that says, I consider everything that the world longs for to be spent and worthless, nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The last thing then, the so what? Verses 5 and 6, the last thing is see persecution in light of judgment day. But they will have to give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The last thing that Peter's telling us is that we need to reframe our persecution not in light of the moment, but in light of eternity, in light of judgment day. Because there's a God who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He's a perfect judge. And he will reward righteousness and he will punish unrighteousness. And all who have remained faithful will be rewarded. And all who have blasphemed his name will receive the due punishment for their actions as well. I think in, in our culture, we're not too keen on justice because we, we see cops who can be bribed. We see people who are just flat out, open, shut, guilty of a crime. They have enough money being able to buy their way out of jail, being able to buy their way out of whatever. Foreign governments, almost all of them, and you can bribe your way out of a guilty sentence. In fact, our, our justice system isn't even whether you're guilty or innocent, right? It's not about that. It's about guilty and not guilty. Yeah, you can be completely wrong in what you've done as long as they don't think you're guilty of the crime that they say you committed. Then you can be let off the hook. And our ideas of, of justice in this world are completely faulty and flawed, and it makes sense that we wouldn't really believe that justice is coming. But the Bible tells us that there's a God who will not stand by. And when the ledgers of time are balanced, that God will judge the living and the dead according to what we've done and according to who we've trusted. When it, it talks about give account, it's a, it's a bookkeeping term. It says we'll have to pay back whatever it is that we've done wrong. And all those who've persecuted the church of Jesus Christ and all those who've blasphemed the holy name of God, that there is a reckoning that's coming. And for those who don't put their faith in Christ, they will spend their eternity paying their debt. I don't really like this teaching, but that's what the Bible says. They'll spend their eternity paying that debt for all those who killed voiceless babies and they got away with it and lived rich in this life. There's a day of reckoning that's coming for them. For all those who caused, as Jesus said, these little ones of mine to sin, to fall away, there's a day of reckoning coming for people like that. For those who blasphemed the name of God and killed people because they were simply because they believed in the name of Jesus. And can any father sit back and watch their son or daughter being unjustly persecuted simply because they bear the family name? And when I see our, my children, if, if any semblance of them getting picked on at the playground at Chick-fil-A or at the, at the running around area at Millennia, like my blood begins to boil. I'm like, what do I need to do in order to avenge this? How much more so our father 
who loves us with an everlasting love. On the other side of the ledger, there's anyone who's ever been persecuted because you stood up for Christ. You'll receive a hero's welcome in heaven. Anyone who gave even a cup of cold water to someone because they bore the name of Jesus, you will not fail to be rewarded. People like Oswald Golter who lost his wife for the sake of the gospel will not fail to receive that and so much more in abundance. And their reunion in heaven is going to be something of the, for the ages. Anyone who's been ridiculed because you didn't do what everyone else did at school and you thought, God, did you even see that? No, no one heard about it. So DL's not going to talk about a sermon. Where's my reward? There's a day is coming when God is going to judge the living and the dead. And so we see persecution in light of that. When I think about people who have persecuted me in the past, I, for whatever reason, and there's a part of me that, that wants them to get their due. But at the same time, could I ever wish an eternity in hell on anyone, even my worst enemies? Now think about that. Like that's why we evangelize, isn't it? That's why we do house church. That's why we're called to shine forth the light. That's why when we get saved, we're still here on earth. We're not just swept up into heaven in a chariot. That's why we're still here. Because we need to prepare people for judgment day. We need to prepare people to stand before their maker, God. We need to prepare people to live in light of that final day. And that's why Jesus lived. And that's why he could suffer the way that he did. He wasn't just thinking about the suffering that he's going through in his body. But he's thinking about judgment day. As he was being spit on. Mocked with a crown of thorns that caused blood to open up in his, in his, in his, in his head. And blood just began spilling down his face. And all the people persecuting him. And all the people persecuting you. And me around the throne. That's who Jesus died for. Hey, but you know what? can't think about this without thinking of what we sing so often here. As we sing, as we hear, as we look at the cross, it's with deep humility that we look at it. Because ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. It wasn't their sin. It wasn't y'all's sin. It was my sin that held him there. It wasn't nails. It wasn't rope. It wasn't anything. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. There's nothing good in me that causes me to boast or think that I'm any better than anyone else who's persecuting me. My only boast, our only boast, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but we will boast in Jesus Christ his death and resurrection. It's the only reason we live, the only thing that separates us from anybody else. 
And in light of our judgment day, Jesus died on the cross so that we could stand before God and all of our punishment, the sin, the punishment has been taken by Jesus so that we can enter into the scariest day of our lives and be met by mercy and grace and a hero's welcome because the nail-pierced hands of Jesus speak over us. He is, she is mine. Enter into eternal rest. It's the only thing that separates us and the people that make fun of us. And so we live, we breathe, we witness, we evangelize, we endure all of this in light of judgment day, in light of the one who gave his life for them, but he gave his life for us as well. He's worthy of suffering for, so much more worthy than any sin that we suffer for. Let's pray together. As I read through the Bible and I think of people who suffered for Christ, I, hear, I read about Paul, I read about Moses, I read about Jesus. And the language that it uses is that they considered any suffering that they go through for Jesus to be worth it a million times over. It wasn't just once or twice they suffered. It was a constant suffering, a constant giving up of their bodies to the point an inch of death. And yet, considering they made a decision in their mind before that suffering happened, that Jesus Christ is worthy of me suffering for. That I will love him even to the point of being hurt and ridiculed and insulted but I will not deny the name of Jesus. We decide now so that we can be ready later. We decide now when we see Jesus so that in those moments where the vision of him gets cloudy by persecution, we might see him more clearly by faith. Let's pray to our God just a couple moments and say, Lord Jesus, help me to bear your name proudly, boldly, confidently, because you boldly, confidently, willingly suffered so that I could be set free. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Let's pray for just a minute. Just ask the Lord God to strengthen me, fill me with vision. I'd be worthy to bear your name. Let's pray together for a minute. Amen. Thank prepare to come to the Lord's table for those who have been baptized or confirmed 
maybe some of us here feel like we need to come back to God. We need to be reminded of the God that we fell in love with years ago. Maybe we've fallen into temptation and sin to go back to the old life. Today, Jesus stands with bloodied hands and he says, come, just come back home. I don't condemn you. I don't need a, I don't need a lengthy lecture of why you did those things. I know. Just come back home. Come back home to my embrace. Everything that you suffer for in this life will tell you, suffer more for me. But Jesus is the one thing that we worship. We suffer for him. He says, I still died. I died for you. Let's just pray a prayer of confession, of commitment. Say, Jesus, I want to come back to you. I want to know you more. I want to rekindle a relationship with you. I want to love you again. May my heart not be divided. Let's pray for just a moment as we recommit our hearts to living for the Lord again. Let's pray together. heaven we thank you for a great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us many of them bearing the marks of their devotion to you on their body some of them with welts in their body some of them with hair pulled out some of them with lashed up backs some of them with disfigured faces, but all of them with unbridled joy calling out to us, keep on going. So worth it. So worth it. So worth it. May we arm ourselves with the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. To fill us with your Holy Spirit. To fill us with your anointing that we might bear the name of Christ and do so well for the sake of the one who bore the thorns and nails for us. Thank you so much. We love you because you loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name.